0: Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that keeps on growing. Today we have Laura,
1: Zoe, and Kellen,
0: and also
2: Bianca
3: and Julia. (laughs)
2: Yeah!
0: <laughs> <We love it. laughs> you know, to all to all of the people on the Chapo Reddit who have already called us out for having a million hosts, too bad for you. We're just gonna keep making you feel like, what the hell are we even doing? Actually, I think
1: but, the Chapo subreddit got deleted today. Um, breaking news. Nice. Anyway. Also- Even when there's only two of us on
4: an episode, they're like, we just can't tell them apart.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's literally like, like men can't tell women's voices apart. It's like, oof, I was about to make a really weird comparison, but I feel like it's literally like people who think all Asian Americans look the same. Yes. It's like, it's like, it's like women's voices, though, not like a racial thing, but it's just like our voices because we're all um, have, like, more feminine voices, it's just, like, lost to people.
4: We do all have the same voice, though.
2: <laughs> but maybe people should just do their research, like, we list everyone on the Twitter, like,
0: yeah, <laughs> so we list cool. everyone on the Twitter, we tell everyone exactly who we are when we start every episode, but, you know, say la vie. Um, But that's right. We expanded our coven to include some new BBs. Uh, For folks that aren't aware, our beloved Ambria had to leave our project due to continuing to pursue her career and education. And our loves Hope and Walita, will still be joining us when they can, but sometimes they aren't able to. So we wanted to bring on some new folks who have new perspectives to help us out. Yes, it
1: is just so exciting to see this project keep growing and changing. And we hope all of y'all listening are just as excited about getting to know our new hosts as we are. Yeah.
4: As the second gen of Season of the Bitch, I'm very excited for the third gen. Yes! Yes!
3: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're not the youngest anymore.
1: (laughs) It's true. I know. (laughs) Okay, honestly, I'm still
4: baby. You're still baby. I'm literally
2: baby. baby. (laughs)
0: Bianca, I need to tell you that Zoe was like, I love Bianca and I also want us to bring her them on as a host however I'm baby I <laughs> yeah, no, wait. Before, I was like, it was
4: before we met Bianca before we did applications I was like I need to remain baby so it wasn't anything about you <laughs>
0: yeah. in fact no for sure
4: in fact bringing you on is a testament to you because I did want to remain baby so
2: oh <laughs> despite Zoe's desire to remain baby
4: I like I yeah. liked you more than I liked my own desire to be baby <laughs> Oh my
0: gosh. Coming from a Sag that is true love. Um, yeah. So we definitely are, we know how hard it is to answer the question, like, tell us about yourselves. So um, I thought it would be more fun or interesting for us to ask y'all a little bit more pointed questions. Um, <laughs> Just to get the audience to know you guys. Um, you know, and for me you on.
1: and, and for Laura specifically, <laughs> but to introduce y'all,
0: I don't want to speak to, for, for everyone else, but for me, I'm like, yes, tell me everything, <laughs> but that's okay. I will, I will slowly continue to do that <laughs> anyway. Um, so what are you most excited about with joining season of the bitch and what are you hoping to cover topic wise? Uh,
2: so for me, yeah, I guess tell me about yourself has always been the hardest question for me to answer only because whenever someone asks me that, I just like immediately forget any relevant facts about myself. <laughs> so it's I'm just extremely like, relatable. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I guess personally, I gravitated toward Season of the Bitch when I first found it about, I think a year and a half ago was because it really educated me in ways that I wasn't fully educated growing up about, politics about history um, about sex education and sexuality Um, so it was really helpful for that reason and also I've always felt that podcasts were sort of this democratizing medium because you know so long as you have the time and the ability and the technology to listen podcasts are this like free educational tool and they Really motivate people to act when other systems of education fail to either welcome all learners or paint full pictures of situations. Um, Also, you guys are all like really cool, and you like know a lot of good things and have good opinions, and so I was also like super excited to join in on the dialogue. Um, Blushing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I just, like, being able to contribute to the cultural moment in this way with all of you was really exciting to me. Yay! Um, So in terms of topics I want to cover, I think you guys might have covered this in earlier episodes, but I think specifically something that I've been interested in when it comes to, like, my own life and other people's lives around me um, is gender identity and specifically non-binary gender identity. And what that means because for me the concept of gender fluidity and gender non-confirmation has like so many facets that I'm still trying to understand myself and when you bring in its relationship to race and class and living with multiple intersections of marginalization it just becomes this topic that is like really relevant to a lot of people's lives and it's like obviously super complex. one yes, out- we want to do it, too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we literally just were talking about this the other day, so I'm so glad. Oh, yeah. amazing. Um, and then another topic that I've also been thinking about is, I mean, as a Chinese-American person, just issues surrounding the Asian-American community and how we reckon with our own oppression at the same time as how we stand in solidarity with other marginalized community, and really how we can hold... Two distinct truths about how we can both be victims of systemic racism and its perpetrators when the white hegemony deputizes us to do that. And so to kind of make that more concrete in this current moment, moment, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, both in the time of the COVID-19 pandemic and how discrimination and harm against Asian Americans was tied to that but also in imagining ways to genuinely and authentically demonstrate solidarity with black communities, indigenous communities, and communities that don't benefit from proximity to whiteness in many of the ways that Asian American communities do. Mm. Um, So those are kind of two things that have kind of been on my mind.
1: Yeah! Yeah, We're so excited to talk about them! (laughs) So
2: good!
3: Yeah, I love everything you just said, Bianca. I'm really excited to help us think more about different gender identities on the podcast as well. Um, Laura, when you first posed this question to us of, like, what are we most excited about? I was just like, I'm excited about everything. Like, I don't even know how to answer that. Um, I've been a fan of the podcast for so long, and it just feels, like, so beautiful and special to be a part of it. So I'm just, like, really, really happy to be here with y'all. Oh god. I also am just, I, I, one thing that I have always loved about Season of the Bitch is how you guys talk about, like, intersectional issues, things that involve capitalism and the intersection with other identities of sexuality and race and class and... Just kind of how all those things interact together, um, not being class reductionist like some other leftist podcasts. (laughs) So, you know, that's, that's always good. Um, and I also just really think like the way that you all make this podcast and keep adding more hosts and running reading groups and, you know, really just like trying to keep this project running in a very socialist feminist way and sharing the labor that goes into it is really cool also. Um in terms of topics that I'm interested in, um, I definitely am interested in just kind of like how we can find love and joy and meaning within capitalism. Um, I think like that is something that often gets left out of conversations about capitalism is like, how can we still create happiness and joy within this? Um, I think one thing specifically within that I'm super interested in like how we can build supportive, chosen families and communities that don't follow necessarily like the capitalist model of family um which can be very patriarchal and based on this kind of like fake idea of safety as something that's within only your family um because to me like the, this idea of the white suburban family as a place of safety and then everything else as a place where there's danger and like you have to view everything outside that is scary is definitely something that makes up this whole racist, capitalist legal system that we have. Um, And then at the same time, which I think we're going to talk about a little more today, um, a lot of really serious harm happens within families and within communities, and we need better ways to deal with that. Um, And then, like Bianca said, I'm also really excited to explore different topics around trans and queer liberation, um, as well as, for me, um, immigrant and Latinx identity and um, ending borders are also topics that I'm super interested in
1: hell yes (laughs)
0: we're
1: so good
0: oh my god
1: Uh, I'm so excited for like literally everything that y'all just said Um, we're gonna have so many fire episodes lined up I'm just psyched so I have a question for y'all as well which is what is your spiciest (laughs) take
2: (laughs) um I just spent so long thinking about takes for this. <laughs> me too. Oh my god. <laughs> I was like, what if everyone agrees with this? And it's like truly not an answer to the question. Um, but no, that's great. I guess one hot take for me is I really, really dislike paper straws. Like I like if I get a paper straw with my drink, I'm like, Ugh. despite their environmental friendliness. I just think, like, no beverage is made better when you have, like, wet cardboard <laughs> introduced to the picture.
4: When I was working at a bar, we had already switched to paper straws. We had them. And this paper straw rep came in with his, like, briefcase and was like, hey, do you use paper straws? And I was like, yeah, we do. And he, like, immediately dropped his facade and was, well, he was like, do you know what brand they are? And I was like, honestly, no and then he like yeah immediately dropped his facade and was like honestly they're terrible and like i wouldn't stock them if i were you and then just like (laughs) sat down and started drinking at the bar and just was like fuck my job oh my god yeah you do sell a terrible product yeah paper straws
2: are terrible confirmed they're always soggy yeah Oh. yeah horrible yeah that's my take i like the reed
1: straws has anyone else had those those are good those are good yeah you don't end up with wads of paper drifting into your mouth with your oh coffee, God. so.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, Also, the metal ones are good, too. I guess the one downside yeah. is that you have to, like, carry hard it hard to clean. You. Yeah. Mm. It's pipe cleaner. They also
3: make, like, silicone ones now. I don't oh, know how no. much more environmentally friendly they are, but, like, they are reusable. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah.
3: Nice. Um, okay. I also spent way too long thinking about this, but <laughs> I... This is a hot take that I have recently embraced as being true about myself, which is that I love reading YouTube comments. I think that it is a good thing that everyone should do more. Um, (laughs) Not necessarily on like political videos, mostly because I just like don't watch a lot of political stuff on YouTube. But like whenever I'm watching like, I don't know, like a music video or like a movie trailer, I always, always look at the comments and sometimes they're just like so cute and wholesome. Like... I don't know. It'll be like a cute story about why the song is important to someone or like a hilarious take about why they hate the song. Like it's just always something new and interesting. And I don't know, increasingly one of the only ways that I feel like I just come into contact with like all different types of people and ideas (laughs) just reading YouTube comments.
4: That is such a water sign mood to be like, I just love reading about other people's random (laughs) feelings about
0: (laughs) this I was like, I want to do that now. (laughs) Roasted. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
4: um, Well, I, I also have a question, which is, if you could be a member of any fictional family slash friend group, what would you choose? For me, because I had to think about the answer when I post it, I would either be in the Adams family as Wednesday's like estranged twin, um, or I would be a Sailor Moon Scout, or my lifelong dream is to have Lorelai Gilmore be my mom, but I don't want the grandparents and I don't want to be related to Rory or be Rory, so it's like, that's mm. a more complicated, complicated situation. Can I right.
1: try to roast you astrologically? You can roast. Me. Is it a sad thing that you asked a question to our two new hosts but had to answer it yourself first? Yeah.
2: Ooh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but
4: yeah. I'm learning. I'm I, learning. I felt un. Unco- I didn't want to ask a question that I hadn't thought about and reflected myself. Right. Well, yeah. I
0: didn't even think about it because I'm like, yeah. I filled
4: awesome. in. I, also, I, I figured we would all answer.
1: Oh well. Anyway. My hottest take is that humans should be entirely hairless, just bald, completely. To be bald. honest,
4: the reason I put my answer is because I saw that you did to yours. Right, I just didn't
1: share. It with them. <laughs> anyway, fair, fair point. I didn't mean to distract us, but uh, yes, please go ahead and answer the question.
3: Yeah, I, I felt intimidated, Zoe, because you have like a really thorough, complete answer. And I was like, oh, God, I don't even know if I can think of one. But um, I watch
4: way too much TV.
3: <laughs> I do watch a lot of TV. It's just like mostly about characters I don't like or want to know. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, but OK, my, my real answer to this, I think, is that I've always thought it would be really cool to be in Adventure Time, um, like Finn and Jake's family, the two main characters, um, partially because I feel like Jake is definitely a trans icon because yes. he can shift his body at will um and that's super cool and then they also just have a super cute like chosen family thing going on mm. um and this may be just like a hot take I really have not fully thought this through yet but I was thinking about the way that they um stop the ice king from like kidnapping princesses in that show and I kind of feel like it might be transformative justice so mm-hmm. I don't know. We might have to explore that further on a future
2: episode. But oh I love it. <laughs> uh, I have the other problem, which is that for some reason there's just like so many movies and TV that I just like haven't seen. <laughs> um, and so when I was like thinking of what to say for this, I was like, well, I can I can give an answer that I think me as a child would have answered, which is when we were young, my parents only bought like. The very basic cable TV plan, so we had only like, I don't know, like ABC, NBC, PBS, just like basic channels. So I watched a lot of PBS Kids growing up. Same, same, yeah. Same. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. So I don't know if you guys remember this show, but do you guys remember Cyber Chase? Oh my
3: god! Okay, uh, <laughs> that was like my first answer to this question. Like Literally, the first thing I thought of <laughs> was Cyber Chase.
2: yeah i guess for people who don't know it's this uh kids show that was on pbs kids and they it was the premise was like there were these three kids um and they like went into this fantasy world to i guess like solve or like to save certain people or just like complete missions But all of the episodes had, like, certain math elements to it. Like, every episode taught you a different mathematical concept. (laughs) But it wasn't one of those, like, super pedantic shows that kids would get bored of watching. It was, like, extremely, like, exciting. And you, like, really build up sympathies with each of the characters. Because each of them had their own, like, personality quirks and everything. And I was like, one, I want to go into this fantasy world because, like, there are, like, hoverboards and shit. And And two, I just, like, want to be friends with them. So that's my answer for me as, like, an eight-year-old. I have to think about me as a 23-year-old more.
0: <laughs> I love that. So I had a couple of answers to this, too, but obviously I would want to be in the Shira fam. I don't really know who I am because I know in season five I'm Katra, but up until that point, Katra is so intense that I don't really know.
4: But the thing is, it's not asking you to be a character. It's asking you to join a fictional family.
0: Oh, okay, great. Well, then, so you could I, just be the Laura of the Shira fam, exactly. Yeah, I would probably live in Bright Moon, or I would live with Mermesta and Seahawk. Yay, that that is what I would do. But you know, we have we have more reasons for being here today than just <laughs> than just this lovely way to to get to know y'all. Um, so we, we want to talk about a transformative justice framework and in case you thought that you wouldn't get to know our hosts anymore, (laughs) we definitely are going to be roasting them on a roasted series and by roasted, I mean, you know, we're just going to talk about how much we love them, but either way that's coming up and so you get to know a little bit more about them astrologically. Also, uh, we wanted to continue our conversations on abolition, and last week I mentioned that we were going to have a conversation about jobs guarantee, um, federal jobs guarantee programs, um, like I mentioned in the, the episode last week, but our guest had a family emergency and needed to reschedule, so that will be forthcoming. So instead, again, we're talking about transformative justice and all that it means, You know, some leftists are calling for the imprisonment of cops that have murdered Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, and of course, countless others. We want to talk about some other options and what we can do possibly instead.
2: Yeah. In terms of imprisonment, I think it's also important to acknowledge that it can be really instinctive to want there to be negative consequences, like including punitive consequences for people who commit racialized murder. Um, and I think Reina from the Eight to Abolition group said this in last week's episode. Uh, and so that as people are in communities are processing their grief, there can be this real desire for these kinds of consequences. Uh, so I guess one challenge, at least for me, from an abolitionist framework is both understanding this human desire for closure and individual consequences and punishment, and continuing to reinforce this idea that... No justice or accountability in any real sense of these words can be achieved when we put anyone, police officers included, in cages and do nothing else.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you for that point. Um, <clears throat> and yesterday, because uh, we're recording this on on Monday, we had our reading group and um, someone who is in the reading group, Nicole, said that cops shouldn't be the first ones to benefit from abolition. And it really shook and resonated with, I think everyone in that reading group, um, because a lot of the readings we've been doing and we will continue to be doing them. So you should join us, um, was about how much of a long game abolition is and really getting rid of imprisonment is going to be one of the last stages. Um, and we talked a lot about, like, non-reformist reforms and how we get to full abolition. Um, so now might not be a time to be on our high horses about abolition, specifically related to killer cops, because we can focus on all aspects of abolition. And we know that the abol- the abolishment of prisons completely is the end goal. And there's a lot to do in between. So imprisoning cops now still might cause some sense of justice for the survivors, particularly families of people who had have been, have been murdered.
3: Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. Um, and I think, like, to me, one of the most important things about abolition as a framework is basically just accepting that policing and prisons already aren't working to solve any of our problems as a society. And it's really about the idea that we need to look elsewhere for those solutions. So to me, like abolition gives us the freedom to actually think about those alternative solutions that don't rely on or center policing and prisons. Um, I really like the way that Miriam Kaba describes this. She has called it a jailbreak of the imagination. So it's like not just about changing the world, but also changing how we think about things. Um, and one important point to me is that no matter what you think should happen to police officers who murder people, we also really need to be thinking about how to stop the police from killing more people. And we're never gonna get there by expanding the power and funding of police and prisons because that will just keep making things worse, essentially.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think a sort of a related point is that not a non-carceral approach doesn't mean that there aren't consequences. Police officers who commit murder should absolutely lose their jobs, which frequently they don't. Um, and like that could be viewed as punitive, but it's also a way of making sure that they don't have the opportunity or the power to harm again. And as a side note, obviously all police officers should lose their jobs, but, um, (laughs) really one of the most important things that we can do is eliminate their power.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, so let's, let's define what we're talking about here. If you aren't quite sure what we mean when we're saying transformative justice, um, My favorite definition that I found is from Mia Mingus with transformharm.org. They write, Transformative justice is a political framework and approach for responding to violence, harm, and abuse. At its most basic, it seeks to respond to violence without creating more violence and or engaging in harm reduction to lessen the violence. Transformative justice can be thought of as the way of making things right getting in right relation, or creating justice together. Transformative justice responses and interventions, one, do not rely on the state, like police, prisons, and the criminal legal system, ICE, foster care system, Um, but some do rely on uh, social services like counseling. Two, they do not reinforce or perpetuate violence, such as oppressive norms or vigilantism, and most importantly, three, actively cultivate the things we know prevent violence, such as healing, accountability, resilience, and safety for all involved.
2: Yeah, Laura, I think that's a really helpful definition. I think when I was first learning about what transformative justice was as a concept, it helped me to understand where the transformation aspect coming fr- came from. Um, so what's really transforming in transformative justice is the dynamics of relationships and so, in this interview with the activist group Philly stands up, they said, "quote Transformative justice believes that when a harm is done, the root of that harm comes from different and multiple kinds of oppression." End quote. So that means things like racism, colorism, classism, ableism, sexism, and c- cissexism. And so, transformative justice doesn't necessarily seek to restore relationships to the way they were, uh, because we don't want to go back to those systems of oppression. Uh, instead, it wants to acknowledge that the harm done acknowledge what the harm done is and to take concrete steps to transform relationships in hope that those transformations can then lead to behavioral shifts. Um, and so I guess like when it comes to what we should do about killer cops, My feeling is that it's relatively easy for people to understand how mass incarceration disproportionately harms marginalized people. I think many people also can easily accept that the prison industrial complex, or PIC, is a tool to protect the profit-driven, capitalistic, white supremacist interests and to protect property that serves those interests. And so when we say things like abolish the police or abolish prisons, Um, People can get on board when they think about these facts about the PIC. But I think the challenge comes when we're faced with the question, so what do we do with killer cops? And a big reason why I think it's more difficult for a lot of people, including me as I was thinking about this episode, to know what to do with cops who commit racialized murder is that in our lifetimes, we haven't seen any alternatives to quote-unquote justice other than relying on police officers and the court systems and prisons. So Julia, you talked about this earlier, and last week you all citing Ruth Wilson Gilmore had talked about how working towards abolition requires imagination and really imagining alternatives to the broken status quo. And so it's that imagining process that is a challenge and it's an exciting and crucial challenge, but nevertheless you know, difficult, um, but also really important work. Mm
3: -hmm. Totally. Yeah. And one important part of transformative justice to me that's different from our current system is that it's not punishment oriented. It's healing oriented. So it's about like recognizing and seeking out what the underlying sources of harm are and then working to change all of those because those are often structural. They often involve lots of people within a family or a community rather than just one person changing their behavior. So if we only focus on punishing one bad cop, we're ignoring how all cops are bad and policing itself is bad. Um, transformative justice principles would suggest we should focus on reducing harm more broadly. Um, and I think one piece of that is seeking better solutions to things that actually cause harm, like sexual assault and domestic violence and police murders. Because policing is currently doing nothing to keep survivors safe, and it actually generally does a lot more to hurt them. One really good example is that most women in prison are sexual assault survivors. And then the other piece of that to me is getting the police out of responses to things like sleeping outside or crossing the street, not at a crosswalk, that just genuinely are not harming other people and really don't need like a state or necessarily even a community response to them that's punishment oriented.
1: Yeah. And I, I mentioned this earlier, but I think that like a lot of abuse in sort of whatever form it takes happens or is able to happen because of an imbalance of power, um, which goes along with what both Julia and Bianca were saying sort of about structures as well um police have an incredible amount of power in society and like bottom line we should take that away bosses have the power to treat their employees like shit so much of gender-based violence relies on the power that abusers have over the people they hurt whether that's people in a workplace environment who are able to sexually harass or assault employees whether that's within families it's whether it's patriarchal domestic violence One of the fundamental transformational goals of our work has to be to dismantle and democratize systems of power, because those systems enable all the kinds of harm that we're talking about.
3: Yeah, and something that I've heard from a lot of abolitionists that I think is really important to highlight is that the system isn't broken, it's doing exactly what it was designed to do. So when people talk about like our criminal legal system being quote unquote broken and that we need to fix it so we can punish the right people and like hold police officers accountable or put the right people in prison. That to me is kind of based on a misunderstanding of how the policing and prison system works. It's already doing exactly what it was designed to do, which is to define the behavior of marginalized people, poor and working class folks of color, gender non-conforming people, anyone who doesn't really fit into dominant cultural expectations, basically defining any behaviors that they do as criminal and then punishing them for that. So this system is fundamentally incapable of holding cops accountable. We see that with the fact that like most police officers who kill people are never even charged with a crime. Um, I got these numbers from Alex Vitale's book, The End of Policing, um, In 2016, U.S. police killed over a thousand people, but in the whole decade from 2006 to 2016, only 54 officers were ever charged with a crime and only 11 were convicted, which is just like crazy. Like, that's so low. Um, But I think it really just shows how like trying to use our existing system to hold police accountable is never really going to be a complete solution.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think also, just really quickly, um, as we've mentioned before, like, even when cops do get persecuted, we know that they're treated differently within the carceral system than other people because the corrections officers identify so deeply with killer cops, (laughs) which is fucked up, but it's true. Um, Anyway, just wanted to... Add that to, like, even though they're, like, yeah, 11 are convicted, it's, like, that's still terrible, but even those 11 are probably, like, not having as bad of a time as other people who are stuck in the carceral state.
3: So. Right. And we we definitely know also that, like, that does not stop those police departments where officers were convicted from continuing to kill more people. So, yeah, it's yeah. totally not even a solution in the cases where it does yeah.
2: happen. Yeah, no, I totally agree with all of that. And, like, what everyone has been saying is reminding me of this Audre Lorde quote, which is, quote, For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat a at his own game, but they'll never enable us to bring about genuine change. End quote. Lesbian icon. Yes.
0: yes. Ugh
2: um like i think that applies to like what we're talking about here with what to do about killer cops but also just like so many system, like political systems here um and so like if we want to dismantle a system that continues to work in the advantage work to the advantage of the police as everybody was saying like the base assumption then is that the system itself has to go um and so what that looks like is like as everybody was saying continually working to strip police officers and police forces of resources and power and reallocating those resources to community self-governance tools and then also making sure that those who have been harmed by killer cops and police brutality get the reparations that they deserve Mm -hmm. um and i think like some of that work is short term and as you all suggested police officers who commit racialized murder should immediately be fired Um, But some of the work can also take a longer time. As an example, last Wednesday, the Oakland School Board voted unanimously to disband the Oakland School Police Department, which is incredible. But uh, that vote wouldn't have turned out the way it did without the work of the Black Organizing Project and other activist groups in the area who had been pushing for uh, abolition for close to a decade at this point. But it shows that while there's still a lot of work to be done, that concrete abolitionist achievements are attainable. Um, so now I'm seeing like more and more pieces of abolitionist legislation being introduced around the country. So as a couple examples, in Portland, Maine, the school board is discussing a similar measure to remove the school police force from the school budget. And in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, which notably is where Breonna Taylor used to live, Uh, The Metro Council is discussing a measure that would take about $9 million from the police's budget and disperse that among city agencies like the Center for Health Equity and the Office for Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods. Um, And that second office, what it does is it convenes community and city leaders to create plans for safe neighborhoods that are driven by the goal to address unmet needs rather than instituting systems of community surveillance or community policing, which we also know is a reformist reform that um, isn't fully effective and doesn't abolish the institution of policing. Mm -hmm. So all of those abolitionist achievements wouldn't have happened without all of the organizing work and without all of the direct action that's been sweeping the nation.
3: Yeah, I I really agree with what you're saying, Bianca, about this idea of firing the cops who are responsible for this type of killing um also other things like removing police budgets and redistributing them to community organizations and things like that um I think when cops are fired for this also we ideally should not be hiring new quote-unquote better police officers to replace (laughs) them um because you know the whole point of these sort of non-reformist reforms, I think, is just slowly chipping away and reducing funding for law enforcement, as well as chipping away at and getting as many people as possible out of jail. Um, So putting individual killer cops in jail doesn't necessarily do as much to move us towards those goals as reducing the number of police and the size of their budgets, um, disarming police officers, things like that.
4: Yeah, totally. Um, shifting the conversation a little, because I wanted to continue another part of the conversation we had last week, um, which is about, like, what transformative justice means for, like, interpersonal relationships, and, um, as Bianca referenced, Raina brought up last week that it's natural, not just in, like, cases of killer cops, where obviously it is, uh, like... Understandable feeling, but it's natural in general, natural in quotes, because these are like learned things from living Mm -hmm. in a punitive society. But like to want someone else to suffer harm if they've made you suffer harm that's like I'm sure a feeling that everyone is familiar Mm -hmm. with. I know that I am. That's something that like we have to unlearn as part of transformative justice, which I think is really important. Um, but yeah, and I also think it's something that like we touch on in our revolutionary romance episodes, which is that like. While we are working on dismantling these larger systems, it's important to be forming, like, radical interpersonal relationships with people around us and killing the cops in our mind. You know? Yes. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, I was talking to Laura about this the other day when I was in a conflict with a person who was um, not being self-aware in the situation, and I was very frustrated. But, yeah, like no two people are ever going to like agree all the time or you're never going to like not accidentally annoy someone or be annoyed by someone or accidentally hurt someone. Like if you think that you've never accidentally said something hurtful to another person, it's probably because you're not that self-aware. You, Mm. you have, um, (laughs) like everyone does. It's very natural. But so I think like the important thing here is how those are handled and that is both, like, being able to apologize and being able to forgive people. Obviously, this does not extend to, like, all circumstances. If someone is, like, if it's, like, abusive levels of conflict, that is something different. Um, And, like, that is also a complicated conversation that we can have at some point. Um, But, yeah, I think there's just, like, a lot to unlearn in this regard, which is important in these conversations. So I also just wanted to hear, like, some of y'all's thoughts about this.
3: Yeah, I think one thing that feels important to me with this is, like I mentioned earlier, the vast majority of harm comes from within families and friend groups and communities and people that we know and spend all of our time with. Um, And I think a lot of times when we hear that someone we care about has hurt someone or when someone we love hurts us it can be really hard to acknowledge and really see that as harm because we get all these cultural messages about how people who commit violence or other forms of harm are disposable. They have no redeeming qualities. Um, And I've definitely personally had times where I look at like my friend who I know has done something wrong. And I think they're not like that. They're not disposable to me. So they must not really be someone who's capable of harm because they don't fit this stereotype that's in our heads. Um, And I think part of why we need to stop viewing people who commit really serious harm as like irredeemably evil is because that actually makes it really hard to have real consequences and accountability for most of the violence people experience in their lives, which comes from people that they know and often care about to some degree and have a really hard time viewing as just bad people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've also been thinking about this a lot. Like, Recently, with this idea of like cancel culture and like how cancel culture fits into an abolitionist framework, but also just about how to make abolition and transformative justice like daily practice in our own lives. Um, One thing I've been ruminating on a lot lately is that folded into abolition, like everybody was saying, like folded into abolition is the understanding that anyone can, can commit harm. And of course, people in power are able to leverage that power to amplify that harm. But abolition understands that in day-to-day life and in interpersonal situations, we all have the capability to hurt people. And so knowing this, there are kind of two things that are coming to mind for me when it comes to handling these interpersonal harms. And I've also been trying to incorporate them more into my daily life. But like, as you said, Zoe, there's a lot to be unlearned for me and I think for a lot of people yeah yeah so one of those things I'm trying to work on and I think fits well into the abolitionist framework is the importance of a good apology and so a good apology to me is one where the person who committed a harm acknowledges what they did and apologize for their actions and that to me is a picture of true accountability and not you know, apologies that sound like, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Um, really, like, taking ownership of the harm that a person caused. Yeah, s- which you- sounds simple, and yet. And yet. Yeah, and it comes down to, like, phrasing, and, like, even if you feel like you harmed a person, like, your apology can still sound like uh, you're apologizing for, the, like, the way that they feel. So, I don't know, It's just, like, thinking about, like, how to, like, properly convey emotions. Yeah. Um, so the second thing I'm thinking about is this idea of forgiveness as anti-carceral, which I kind of thought was this like really hot take, but I think it's, I think there's substance to it. And so like when it comes to people you care about, when you don't forgive or when you continue to hold a grudge, you're trapping yourself mentally, you're trapping the other person and you're preventing your relationship to that other person from transforming um, and you're kind of caging up that relationship and not allowing it to shift. And so if you want to reconcile with that other person, uh, forgiveness liberates you to take steps in that direction. And if you want to, you know, end a relationship with the person for what they did, forgiveness is one way that you can liberate yourself from holding this constant grudge or being constantly embittered toward that person, which I think requires a lot of emotional energy on your part. <laughs> um I know that's, like, much easier said than done, and I think maybe there are certain harms that aren't forgivable at all, or maybe there are instances where asking for somebody to forgive requires an undue amount of emotional labor on their part. So I'm not sure if this is, like, a prescriptive one-size-fits-all thing to apply to every single situation. But, like, in the examples that... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I I just was going
0: to say, like, I think... I think you can forgive someone mentally and still have a boundary where you don't want them in your life Mm. or don't, like, it, it's okay to set boundaries for yourself. I don't think that's what you're suggesting, right? Like, I think you can, you can forgive someone and, like, even have a conversation about that, but also that doesn't mean that you have to be, like, friends with that person. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too, like,
4: deciding that you don't, someone is like healthy to have in your life you can still forgive them and be like maybe I don't think they're a bad person but like they're not a good person for me like it's not punishing someone to be like but I don't want you in my life specifically but like I yeah. don't wish other harm on you
2: yeah yeah I'm trying to think of forgiveness as not a thing that says like oh I forgive you because I think you're like an entirely morally good person like I'm forgiving mm. you to like release you know, the tensions that we might have between each other or to, like, release this, like, thing that's kind of, I guess, providing a lot of tension for both people. So, yeah, it's kind of, like, this gray area, I think. Um, yeah, absolutely. But, like, in the examples that you were giving earlier, Zoe, when, like, one person accidentally says something harmful to another person or, you know, does something that, like, maybe gets on another person's nerves, the way to shift that relationship... And to liberate it from being this stagnant kind of negative thing, um, which is what happens when two people just become hostile to each other and stop talking, is to encourage both accountable apologizing and also eventual forgiveness in whatever form that takes.
3: Yeah, one thing I also want to add is that I think a lot of people who have experienced serious harm, myself included, don't necessarily want a police response to it. (laughs) um and even when that happens it often doesn't feel very like validating or healing um i think an example that a lot of people are aware of is how badly cops tend to treat people who report incidents of sexual assault and i think the same is true for lots of other marginalized groups um there's actually been some research showing that more than half of trans folks who report violence against themselves to the police then experience police brutality Um, like when they're reporting as a survivor of a violent act. So that's also a good example of just how, like, sometimes reporting things to the cops literally just isn't an option. Um, I think for lots of other people, like folks who are undocumented or who do sex work just don't have the option to call the police because that will likely also mean harassment and punishment directed at them. So I think it's important to highlight what we were discussing earlier, that a community's response to violence shouldn't necessarily be solely guided by what the survivor wants. But I also think when we're looking at what a lot of survivors want and need, it's not necessarily more harm in the form of a super extreme punishment to the person who hurt them. Um, And being able to even see the cops as a potential source of justice is a huge privilege that a lot of Mm. people just don't have at all. Totally.
4: Yeah, I think that's a good point to something else that came up last week that I, f- I forget which one of our guests said it, but um, about how, like, most people who have experienced harm either personally or by, like, losing a family member or something like that, like, the main thing that they want is for other people to not experience that same thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, right. yeah. Can I share a story very briefly? Of yeah, course. So always. So, I... I don't think that the person who did this, well, I mean, and it's on it from a transformative justice level, it's not like a big deal or anything. So (laughs) um, no, I do not hold this against this person, but it is a funny story. Um, I uh, used to help organize a um, like socialist reading group a few years ago, and I think it was in the context of discussing what else to read. And this was like before prison abolitionism was like on everybody's you know lips or whatever it was obviously still a thing that people were pushing for but it's not something that like the wider public knew about and even like to a degree that is not necessarily the case today it's something that there was hostility to I think in a lot of like leftist circles not that that doesn't exist at all but anyway people were more wary of it I think than they are today um And we were talking about like abolitionist readings and this one like white man in the group was like, you know, skeptical of police abolition and was sort of like, well, I just feel like, you know, if if um, a woman gets, you know, assaulted, she's still going to have to like have the opportunity or the option to call the police. Like, what else is she supposed to do in this point? And I was like, in that moment, like, do I... Do I respond um, to this like and share my experiences? Is this a moment where I it's like time for me to like cut myself open and be like, look at my guts, this is what happens in real life? <laughs> um, and in a very non-dramatic way, I think I tried to do that and was like, well, you know, I experienced a particularly like violent sexual assault at one point. Um, and the thought of like talking to the police about it didn't even occur to me. Like, because it was just such, so far from being an option that would help in any way. Like, I knew already after it happened that there was no way that I could prove what had just happened to me had happened. The person was very careful about that and that that just wasn't an option for me. Um, In addition to the fact that, like many other survivors, I was in shock for 36 hours and, like, you know, anything that might have been helpful was gone at that point. And I shared all of this in, like, a reading group, which maybe was too much, who knows. Um, But this guy was like, wait, you didn't even think about calling the police? And I was like, no, dude, like, it it was just not in the realm of possibility. And he was like, well, don't you think this guy should go to jail? And I was like, no. No, not really. Like, I don't have any particular desire for this person to be punished. There's a point where, like, a person I was friends with threatened to, like, was, like, do you want me to kick his ass? And I was, like, I mean, part of me gets some joy from imagining that. Mm
4: -hmm. I do think
1: I offered to run him over with a car at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know? (laughs) But, like...
0: No. Offer's well, still on the table. I got a car in Buffalo. I'll pick up Zoe on the way. I don't care. Like, let's go.
1: But, but like, really, like what you were saying, Zoe, the thing that is most of, would be most important to me is that, A, like, the particular power that he had, which is partially just due to his gender and his race, um, and is partially due to all of these institutional protections that this person happened to have that all of that would be like stripped away from him and that he just wouldn't have the basically societal structural power to be able to inflict that kind of harm on anybody else ever again. And like yeah. that is something that I think maybe is harder for people to imagine if they haven't had those kinds of experiences Um, because I think that, like, the person that I was talking to, like, wasn't somebody that had experienced much, it seemed like, violence in his, in his life, which is great. Um, but there's this sort of imaginary that exists that comes from, like, we talked about, I think, partially, like, propaganda. It's like, when something happens, it's law and order SVU time, like, Mariska Hargitay is, like, on the case, ready to solve it, that, detective man that she works with who's always shirtless like he's there too and he's ready to listen to women and like that's not actually how things work at all in practice
2: yeah as you were talking I was just thinking about like when you experience like sexual harm like this when a police officer like say the police officers were called like what would the next step be like they would like embark on this like investigation to uncover like evidence so to speak Mm -hmm. it's like yeah like as you said like if because a lot of people don't really trust non-cis men's narratives of sexual Mm -hmm. harm it's like what real evidence exists if like one the perpetrator of that harm was like careful as you said to conceal the evidence and two it's like if a narrative account is like on its face dismissed as untrustworthy it's like what else is like what else can the police even do to like rectify anything that's happening yeah uh, also like the literal yeah.
4: best case scenario is that they give you a rape kit that never gets tested
1: i went to the uh, like best case scenario i went to about 36 hours later after i had like fully processed what it well not fully but processed what had happened to me i went to the OBGYN who was like on call and like the sort of emergency OBGYN who happened to be an elderly white man who um <sighs> I asked me if I wanted to do a rape kit, and I knew that there wouldn't be evidence, so I said no, and he said, yeah, you probably don't want me poking around down there with what's happened uh-huh. anyway. And it's like, I, I, this is the this person who's not involved in, like, the the carceral state, who's, like, not, it's not even his job to, like, investigate and determine harm. He also told me that this should be a good reminder to me to watch my drink. Um, and it's just like, yeah, yeah, I could see... Listeners can't see Zoe's face, but it was one of absolute <laughs> disgust, which I believe is the right reaction. And and it's like, these are, I think, I share this not for, like, sympathy points or anything, but just because I think that a lot of listeners, maybe, who haven't had these experiences don't know the full extent of, like, what it's like or what it would be like to try to seek, like, a carceral response to something like this. And the answer is, like, the the cards are stacked against you. It's just, it's... The police are not your friends. The the OBGYNs are not necessarily your friends. Like, you've just experienced one of the most horrible, horrifying things in your life. Like, you're not necessarily in the frame of mind to go through with anything else. So, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense that, like, for a lot of, you know, survivors, the carceral system is not, like, is not even the ideal solution. So bringing them up as sort of this straw man, I think, is actually, like, further invalidating
0: I think that whole abolition movement is a big project on making sure the people who have power right now don't abuse their power and in fact maybe lose their power for a more egalitarian si- system well said. that mm-hmm. can have mutual accountability across the board. But <laughs> we are at time. <laughs> we
4: hope you enjoy getting to meet our new co-hosts. You will be getting to know them more soon, as will we. Um, so yeah, and there as Laura said, there will be a roasted of them coming out soon, but only on Patreon. So you have to join at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. Well, wow. wow.
0: flawless transition. Thank <laughs> you
4: so much. It just to me on the spot to be honest. But,
0: uh,
2: yeah. yes. <laughs> um
4: you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Season of the Bee. You can email us at seasonofheb at gmail.com. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Um And, oh, also now on Patreon, we have a Discord channel, and we have a reading group on abolition and anti-racism. So if you were like, I want to be able to talk to them about these things, you can, but you have to pay us. (laughs) Um. (laughs) True. But it can be, like, it can be a dollar. We don't really have, like, specific tiers for that. So yeah, it can be a dollar a month. Personally, I think we're worth it if you're able to. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think that is everything. Cool. Love you guys Love you, love you. Love you. Love Bye, Bye. Bye. <laughs> Oh my god we all just said I love you for the first time I know A moment
2: <laughs> I'm crying Season of the Bitch